0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. You've just downloaded an episode of Sectarian Review, a monthly podcast of reviews, cultural criticism, and opinion. Contributors to Sectarian Review tried to think broadly and seriously, but also a little frivolously about the life of the mind in contemporary America. We've read a lot, watched a lot, and thought a bit about the world, and we're here to talk about it. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, but don't hold those guys too responsible for what we say here. If something we say gets you thinking, send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page where you can post comments, reactions, and ideas for future episodes. Now sit back, relax, and hopefully enjoy another episode of Sectarian Review. Song of Myself, 1892 version by Walt Whitman, stanza one. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul, I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. My tongue, every atom of my blood, formed from this soil, this air, born here of parents, born here from parents the same and their parents the same. I, now thirty-seven years old, in perfect health begin, hoping to cease, not till death. Creeds and schools in abeyance, retiring back a while, sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor, for good or bad... I permit to speak at every hazard, nature without check, with original energy. Welcome to Sectarian Review, everyone. Uh, This is episode two, and its title is Voice in the Age of Mansplaining. And I'm using the term mansplaining as a kind of catch-all for the hyperbolic ways in which opinion is too often shared here in contemporary America, which is something this podcast wants to actively avoid and even belittle when at all possible. We'll call it mansplain shaming. Uh, But the idea of having an episode about voice in general came to me because the college I teach at, Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, has decided to make this year uh, make voice the theme of our academic year. Um, We have speaker series, common readings and so forth that organize around the idea of voice. And so I've been thinking a lot about this try and incorporate it into my my teaching as well and so it it seemed natural for me to uh, try to address it here today. Um, Although I am never alone on this, today I'm joined by uh, Tom Dawkins. He's from Case Western Reserve University. Tom, uh, welcome and uh, why don't you say a few words about yourself.
1: All right, thanks. Yeah, I I am at Case Western. I'm an English PhD fellow. Um, I've collected master's degrees like Pokemon, so um, I have an MFA in poetry and I um, spent some time at Vanderbilt Divinity as well. So uh, I'll be wearing a couple of different hats, I suppose, at some
0: point here. Excellent. Excellent. And Tom and I are joined by Mark Trump. He is uh, Assistant Professor of uh, Christian Ministries at Emmanuel College. Mark, do you want you to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Uh, great. Yeah, uh, I am Mark Trump. I teach in the uh, Christian Ministries Department at Emmanuel College. And uh, my interests uh, are in ethics and scripture and narrative uh, and also, I have a background uh, in art, uh, studying at two different art schools. And so the concept of voice and how some of that plays out uh, absolutely fascinates me. I'm excited to be a part. Thanks. Uh,
0: thanks for being here, guys. Um, I really appreciate your willingness to to step in and uh, have a nice conversation with me. So uh, let's start off, uh, I wanna throw this first question out to Tom. Uh, Tom, uh, we live in a time in which uh, things like the perpetual election cycle, social media, and the reductionism that comes along with that, along with political hyperbole, are kind of the new normal in our rhetorical landscape, at least. What do we even mean by voice in the modern world? And what's at stake for our culture in the ways that we conceive of it?
1: Yeah, so um, starting out really simple, right? Uh, yeah well, I mean so uh, if we are starting out with the election cycle, I think um when we're talking about voice and we're trying to um nail down what one candidate's voice is over another, I think um it's like the old song says that they say it best when they say nothing at all <laughs> um, i think I think um, you know when i and this is a um both sides of the aisle kind of argument, but you know i I think. Um, what's going to catch on, what's going to seem universal is what's already out in culture, what we're already used to. Um, we're always going to be talking about uh, uh, Ronald Reagan's ethics or, or JFK or, or the New Deal or, or an FDR. Um, but really, I mean, those are, those are all things that are out in culture and, and it's um, when we're talking about voice, it just seems like we that we're finding language. That's just uh, Neutrally playing back to to um, what seems like it's already your opinion, right? Like it's it's not it's not hard to get behind freedom, um, I, but <laughs> but when pressed to say what what freedom is, you know, it's it's uh, a lot harder to define. So I th- I mean I think that's where I would start. is just trying to figure out um, does voice have something to do with what we're actually saying? Um, does it have something to do with our ethos? Um, does it stand is it something about where we stand? Um, uh, and what that looks like? So I, I might pause there. yeah.
0: Mark, do you have anything
2: off the top of your head? Uh, the thing that fascinates me about the current political climate and voice is it seems as if people are making choices or decisions as you look at the polls and the popularity of the various candidates of people who are actually giving expression to their voice. And there's a a real concept of uh, discontentment and even dissidence in the political atmosphere right now. Mm -hmm. And the thing that has fascinated me is that the candidates, especially on the Republican side, who are rising to the top are those with whom voters seem to identify um, that can give their voice, typically outsiders. Um, The thing that worries me is One particular candidate who shares my last name, um, <laughs> his, his discourse and his voice, um, I think, not only reflects the concerns of the wider culture, but what concerns me is his mode of expression also seems to reflect the avenue that discourse is going in this culture. So there are uh, quick asides to attack people, even in some of the debates that I've watched, uh, making fun of, poking jabs at, uh, questionable discourse towards women, uh, questionable discourse towards those who seem to be lower in the polls than, than he is. And, and I, what worries me when I watch that is that people are choosing someone not only that gives them a voice, but that also talks in
0: the way that they would – <laughs> and in the worst ways, Yes, yes, yes we are talking to each other. And, and I'm thinking so much uh, about that situation, how it's kind of like a Frankenstein's monster sort of thing. Like this is really he's really kind of a product of our cultural values in a lot of ways. And uh, and, and so those of us who are um, uh, concerned about his popularity, I mean, we really should question what we have what we have contributed (laughs) to his, to his rise. Uh, and so, yeah, um, Tom.
1: Yeah. I think what's, what's interesting about that to me is that, um, uh, what, what I'm hearing Mark say there is that, that the voice that that's appearing that, um, this, this candidate gentleman is, is allowing to happen. It's what he's doing is, is kind of giving it, um, giving it a mode or, or giving it, um, giving a way of speaking about these things that people um, uh, feel ashamed or feel is not appropriate um, or um, don't want to be talked to, down to if they let out these opinions. So, um, you know, I, but that, I wonder if that's, um, you know, his voice, it, it I don't, it's, it's not as if he's giving voice to the voiceless in the way that we normally say it as much as um saying things in, in a mode that makes it seem acceptable, you know, uh, and and that mode is just something um, blunt and direct as if we all already agree on what he, with what he's saying. Right.
0: And as if bluntness and directness is its own kind of ethical standpoint and end to be blunt and direct is a sign of uh of truthfulness or honesty or something like that and so people i think are coming to prize rudeness as uh almost as an ethos as as a as an ethical position And, and and i think it's sort of terrifying a lot of people to see this um Stretch out in this election season as as long as it has. I mean, I think a lot of people thought this was going to be a passing fad, and, and that it was going to be over. But I think the fact that it it has lasted as long as it has kind of tells you more than maybe you want to know <laughs> about the reality of our of our of our uh, political discourse in, in the yeah. landscape. Yeah. Um, but at the same
1: time, I will say that um, that that kind of discourse. Uh, you know if if he's bringing in the unspoken voice of America uh, that starts a conversation right like so um maybe that is a, a voice that hasn't been heard and maybe um to say that it shouldn't be heard that that this sort of rudeness uh, um, the um the kind of hatred or vitriol behind it is um, unacceptable, possibly but I mean. One of the roundabout benefits is that we get to discuss it. We're talking about it right now. Um, we get to look, we look to get to look down on it because because they are so direct right um
0: yes, I agree with that. Mark, what do you think about that idea is it is the the ugliness kind of serving its own kind of ethical purpose then
2: um, an ethical purpose <laughs> hmm. maybe a longed for purpose. I mean, deep down inside, you know, Danny, when when you and I were uh, at <laughs> Emmanuel College deep in the heart of Georgia in the Peach State, um, we used to look at each other and think, I wonder what they think of us because of the way we speak being from the north. Yes, And so there are certain modes of speech that are even associated with certain parts of the country um, and that uh, can be valued in parts of the country and undervalued or not valued at all or even seen – you know, and, and and that voice. What surprises me about that voice is that um, there are so many evangelical Christians following this voice and attracted to this voice, but they would never say the things that he would, nor would they condone it in any of their religious leaders. But they would condone it in their politician, which just fascinates me. Hmm. Um, that I I don't, you know, listening to how he speaks, what he says.
0: That's not a voice I want speaking for me. Hmm.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, and I I wonder how much, too, this is a function of the media in which our discourse takes place. Um, And by that, I mean like so much of our discourse now has been uh, atomized and, and and fragmentized and fragmentated. Is that a word? I totally made that up. Uh, uh, made into isolated little islands and we, like social media. So you end up following like-minded people and you have this sort of echo chamber effect, I suppose. Yeah. And, and, and within those echo chambers, people are kind of more free to be that angry and hyperbolic uh, and that sort of thing. But there's always been a kind of a, Uh, an acknowledgement i feel like that outside of that in in the more general public sphere we need to be more kind of uh we need to incorporate listening in a way that we don't have to uh in within these these new media And, and do you guys have any opinions about that
2: well i would say that there's a change you know when we're talking about voice and and giving voice um, the the you know part of this is the voice that we would give or the voice that we would use. You also have sort of uh, a realm or spatial issues involved in this, so that you would have a public and a private voice. And and I think that what's happening is is we're seeing sort of the private voice brought out into the public, right? And in whether that's through literature of dissent or music of dissent or or anything like that, um, and what would have been public, what, what would have been unaccepted public discourse, even forty or fifty years ago, is now considered sort of the norm of public discourse when it would have been private discourse. And you're seeing almost, in in some ways, this flip flop of what is private, what is public.
1: Yeah, I think part of that, the the private becoming public here, is that. Um, well, it's the, the the product of the twenty four hour news cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that in this kind of sound bitey language that that we accept as political discourse um, is it's you know th- these these folks are entertaining. You know they um, they get up and they make a show of an opinion that you already hold. Um, you know that that may have been private to you, and 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 it feels acceptable in. In the um, mode of entertainment that they're used to seeing these things happen, so in um, in a strange way it's it's actually what's probably most comfortable to most people,
0: yeah it is um, did you see this week uh, I guess this podcast will live in perpetuity, so that may not actually make any sense a few weeks from now, but uh, recently there was a, a, a kind of a prankster being interviewed on, I think it was HLN, about Edward Snowden joining Twitter. And, and this person was sort of mistakenly invited to the conversation and decided to basically vandalize it by talking about Edward Scissorhands, uh, the whole time. Uh, and so every question the interviewer would ask, he would answer as if he was talking about Edward Scissorhands to the point where he was saying, Oh, it's not his fault. He was made on top of a mountain by Vincent Price and and all this sort of thing. (laughs) Um, and it's like, she didn't even hear that she, that he was, not even participating in the same questions. She would just move into the next question. Well, why does he have to live in Russia then? Uh, and, and so, like to me, that was a perfect illustration of what you guys are talking about. How this medium is such an entertainment-driven thing that kind of uses news and, and current events and, and the you know public discourse as its fodder. Uh, that the medium itself discourages thoughtful dialogue, uh, in a way, and, and just prizes the individual voice and the shouting of an opinion, uh, which is, uh, Mark brought up the uh, his namesake's uh, contribution to this, and, and I think he's a, a perfect uh, face to put on this term, mansplaining, uh, yeah. that, I, that I've, <laughs> I've used for this, right? Yeah. Um, and, and actually, uh, what you guys have been talking about really is a nice segue into my next question. Um, with the public-private... Uh, divide that we've been talking about here and the dichotomy there Um, it seems to me that by bringing the private public we are sort of making some sort of claim for authenticity as a as a as a a moral desirable right Uh, is like the idea of authenticity is more important than community and dialogue and this sort of thing being truthful and true to yourself um is the authentic. is this this concept of authenticity first of all what do i even mean when i say that i'll I'll let you answer me (laughs) about that but is it to blame for what we're talking about Uh, you want to start with mark this time and then move over to tom
2: yeah you know the thing that that fascinated me about that question when you ask it in the medium is that the medium itself sort of mitigates against authenticity uh, because, um, you can have conversations over the internet. You can have conversations through media. Uh, you can have conversations with a screen in some ways like we're doing now. And it, uh, and you can get away with saying things in that way that you might not say in an authentic conversation, um, and 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 you know it brings up the question of what is authenticity? Is it what you're how you're presenting yourself to someone else in an intimate way? Um, because it seems as if the media sort of counteracts that
1: yeah I, they, um, they I mean it's it's so problematic. <laughs> I think you know uh, I think what what we say or what feels authentic to us. Well, I think sometimes when we say authentic, we mean, well, this is it's that it's truly my opinion. This is really, truly the way I feel about it. Right. Um, And so if I'm able through that medium to share something that is intimate, it feels like I'm saying something personal. Um, The problem with that is that um, that thing that you're holding in, um, that thing that feels personal so often um, it's just a part of a public discourse um, that we've already decided is is a hateful or vitriolic discourse, you know, um, or it's something that you've heard uh, from one of your institutions or one of your communities. Um, you know, there there aren't a whole lot of original opinions out there, so um, there's there's a reason that some things have become inappropriate and thus private and, and that we don't bring them into public discourse. Um, whether, whether that's a good thing or not, you know, that's to be decided.
0: Yeah. And what you're saying, uh, I think has a lot of validity. The idea that um, you're misidentifying public sentiment and, and just sort of prefabricated, you know, inheritances uh, from other places as yours. And, and, is, and what it is is, you're basically a consumer, uh, of ideas in this case, and you sort of constructed your own identity through the products that you've consumed. Right. And so mm-hmm. if you are uh, a fan of pr- cable news source, a, uh, then cable news source, a, your becomes internalized and, and that becomes quote unquote for you, your authentic self. Um, and, and the problem is when you try to, carry that into other situations <laughs> where it's not necessarily appropriate that those sort of assumptions, um, without the idea of, of listening. Um, and yeah. I feel like the idea of voice has to be part of a dialectic for me and ha- you can't just, you are not a voice in the wilderness with no context. I mean that you, your voice comes from someplace and the yeah. idea of constantly revising that voice, um, through, through an act of listening, I think is what's being lost in our culture.
2: Yeah. Mark, I'm wondering what we would actually um, qualify as authentic. Uh, the reason why I say that is because, I mean, if you take an understanding of you know the postmodern human, um, we're not sort of a tabula rasa, but the world is created as we interact with it, and, and we are created as well. Mm -hmm. so in that sense is there anything authentic well maybe not but i'm interested in or or at least would be interested in pursuing the concept of at what point does it become authentic Mm -hmm. at what point does it uh become sort of uh mine and not just something that has been regurgitated from the community or from the inputs the selective inputs uh that i take part
1: in yeah yeah, I mean I one one way that I've been thinking about this, um you know, I'd have to lean on my creative writing background here. Um please but, do. When, yeah, <laughs> but when um I'll switch to a mode. Um <laughs> a different mode. But when we're teaching voice, so um and I just had an incident uh last summer. Well, an experience, an opportunity for discussion. <laughs> last summer that, that I think illustrates it. I, um, we were, I had a student who was really into um, writing drama and fiction and kept asking me how to develop his voice. Um, and the, the answer from a creative writing instruction standpoint is always, well, keep reading, find the things you like. And yeah, you're gonna try on those other voices, quote unquote, or you're going to try to mimic those things or you'll find that you sound like those other things but you put those aside or, or you start combining voices and eventually your voice emerges. And it sounds like this kind of magical process, but it's, it's really just kind of like a dialogic model, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, it's, there's, there's this sense that if you read and write a lot that, um, that there's, the, uh, the tabula rasa idea is kind of, uh, neat or, or like, um, like a wordsworthy and ideal of, of there's this little baby, uh, true voice inside of you that will come out as long as you just need to work them out. And that's not how it happens. It's, it's actually hearing those other voices in your voice, hearing your voice in those other voices and and realizing that these are all things you've heard before and, and kind of putting them aside. Um, and so what, what turns out to be the authentic voice it, from a writing standpoint isn't something you start with it's it's somewhere down the line it's it's um it's something you realize is in process right
0: um absolutely mark uh you said you have a a background in art as i know i know you do already but um like it's it's got to be the same thing you how much of developing as an artist is imitation oh everything is imitation initially mm-hmm. right.
2: Um, and, and, and you, you know, it's one of the things that I encountered in art school all the time, you know, uh, people want to go out and do their own thing and create their own piece of artwork and things like that. But in order to be able to play on something, you first have to master it. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point that it sort of becomes your own because you're able to take those inputs and those various genres or the various styles that you see. And then once you understand them completely, then play on them. And that's really where the brilliance comes in. And, and you know, that might get back to our conversation that what happens is, is a lot of people are simply regurgitating. They're not taking it, manipulating, playing with the ideas um, and challenging, for instance, the weaknesses and then saying, OK, I can accept this for this reason. Um, And, and it's much more of an initial sort of gut reaction feeling expression, um, Mm -hmm. that we see, um, and, and sort of divorced from any cognizance.
0: Yeah. Um, I, you know, what you're saying, I remind, I remember our conversations for the last few years about how you challenge your, you know, largely kind of Sunday school evangelical student body, uh, to kind of really, question their beliefs both political and and theological beliefs not so much that you want necessarily to change what they think about things but just to sort of deepen uh and and make them sort of earn that right uh but to get to get around this and i think that uh is largely what education should be doing like outside of even you know uh you know a religious one um Mm -hmm. and and also, I'm reminded, I mean, this conversation about your voice, this conversation that calls into the question authenticity, uh, and, and at least the simplistic way in which we kind of think of it, uh, reminds me of the, the poem that I started this podcast with, Song of Myself by Whitman. Um, you know, it has this sort of bombastic title about, you know, someone I'm celebrating myself, right? Um, I celebrate myself and sing myself. And that kind of sounds like what we are... Uh, experiencing in our political discourse today <laughs> to, a, to a negative degree. But uh, in that says, he says, born here of parents, born here from parents the same and their parents the same. Um, it, it's very aware The speaker of that poem is very aware of how his self is a created thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it isn't just an original product of sort of some sort of divine genius. You
2: know, the other thing that, that, <clears throat> That, you know, just thinking of and that I was bringing at least going to bring to the table is, is that there are also other times where you have a voice because you are representing a group and the views of that group. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking uh, about, um, you know, my namesake Trump and how he gives voice to what many, many people are thinking. Mm-hmm. But there are other instances, for instance, like the prophets of the Old Testament. Giving voice to God or, Mm -hmm. for instance, I'm thinking about folks like Oscar Romero, and we could go down through the list, uh, Mother Teresa, who are seeking to give voice on behalf of a group that doesn't seem to have a voice. Right. And so they're not necessarily – it's not necessarily authentic,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: but it's certainly bringing a voice to the table, to the conversation that maybe hasn't been heard.
1: Yeah. You know, that's really interesting because I think um, I don't think Whitman is very far from like the, the Walter Brueggemann um, line of prophetic thinking, you know, mm-hmm. that it, what's what's happening in that poem. Um, yes, he introduces himself. No name yet. Right. Like Walt Whitman, the name is in the poem somewhere, but it doesn't happen right at the beginning. And then he disappears pretty quickly. Whoever that speaker is disappears and other things happen. Um you know, and Grugerman's first rule of, of prophecy is that it tells the facts on the ground,
2: right? right.
1: Um, it just shows what's happening. And mm. if you're giving voice to something, you don't need to tell people that poverty is a bad thing. You just show them what poverty looks like. Mm. Um, you show them what oppression looks like, and that's um, and that's step one. And then you can, you know, the other steps are then you read for it, and then you imagine a new future for it. Um, I think those, there's less grieving and more imagining in in Whitman, but I think that first step is always a really interesting one to me that, um, that to presume to give voice to something isn't to stand up and isn't always, I should say, isn't always standing up and saying what others can't say. Sometimes it's just standing up and showing what life looks like for them Mm -hmm. telling the facts on the ground
0: i 'm going to break script just a little bit because what you guys are talking about about uh, providing voice for others is actually a wonderful segue into the an interview I recently did with um, the head of our uh, Mount Aloysius here has uh, a sign language interpreting program, and I interviewed recently the uh, Kirsten Mirowski, uh about that program, and so much of our conversation was about that role in sort of effacing the self and becoming embodying literally a voice for someone who doesn't have one within a spiritual or within a cultural context. And so um, I'd like to kind of pause right here, uh, jump into an interview, and then we'll come back and talk about um, artworks. All right. I'm talking today with uh, Kirsten Mirowski. Uh, she is the director of the sign language interpreting program here at uh, Mount Aloysius College. Kirsten, how are you doing?
3: Good. How are you?
0: Good. Good. How's the semester going?
3: Good. Busy. Good.
0: Busy. Um, yeah. Students doing well? Oh, yeah. That's good. Hard working. <laughs> That's good. Good. Well, I want to begin with a mistake I made in the um, prep for this show, actually. I had referred to your program as um, the American Sign Language Program uh, in our sort of correspondence about this. And you corrected me and added the term um, interpreting. And I think that that's a really interesting um, place to begin. Like, what does that distinction mean to you?
3: So most interpreting programs, spoken language interpreting programs, will define themselves with the two languages they are interpreting between. So you might have a French-English interpreting program or a Spanish-German interpreting program. So we here at Mount Aloysius are the ASL, American Sign Language English Interpreting Program. I try to convince everyone just to call us Interpreting okay. Program but um, <laughs> because the two languages have to be known to be able to do the process of interpretation.
0: Okay. And so the, the word is important because it sort of like indicates the, the middle point between two things that need bridged. Exactly. If you will, right. Um, and I think that's really interesting. This episode of course is about voice. And one of the reasons I wanted to uh, talk to you is that I, when I found out about this program and what you're doing, I thought that was a really interesting, um, uh, like example of, of, voice in a context that we don't normally think of it. And so, um, how does a vague cultural concept like voice translate into the deaf community? And as we're talking about this um, topic at Mount Aloysius idea of voice all year, how are you relating it to your work and the community you serve?
3: Voice is a big issue for everyone. you know there's definitely minority groups that suffer from their lack of voice or their unheard voice and deaf the deaf community is a minority group in the United States and and globally, but in the u s, we as interpreters for the deaf and hearing communities have to bridge that gap, like you said, and our voice becomes the voice not only for the deaf person, but also for the hearing person. right? If you're considering voice as a conceptual entity of communication or the message, Mm -hmm. not just the sound you hear that comes out of your mouth. Um, So as interpreters, sometimes people see us as a voice for the deaf people, but we are as much of a voice for the hearing people as well. When when people are communicating.
0: That's really interesting. I think when I think of voice, I mean, I think of listening as, as big a part of it as, as, as speaking. Right. And so what you're suggesting here is that your role as this kind of middle ground voice for between these two um, apart communities um, actually serves the hearing community um, as much as, or perhaps, Maybe not as much
3: (laughs) as. No, absolutely. I always have a minimum of two clients. There's a hearing person who doesn't know American Sign Language and a deaf person who cannot hear English. Mm -hmm. So between those two, I have to be there to make sure that they both are understanding what each other is saying. So when you consider hearing people in the United States as one culture and deaf people who live in the United States having their own culture... And bridging that communication, we have to incorporate cultural equivalence and dynamics and um, making sure that the deaf person understands the hearing person's perspective and vice versa is all part of what we do when we are um, when we're portraying somebody else's voice, somebody else's message.
0: And I think it's great, the idea of equating, really, voice with culture um, is um, very important.
3: For sure.
0: It isn't just an individual speaking into nothingness, right? Right, right, (laughs) right, right. That's good. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be an interpreter uh, for the deaf community? Um, What does it really mean? I mean, in some sense, you're embodying somebody else's voice. What does that mean to you?
3: Um. It is a big responsibility, and we do have a lot of power. This is what I tell the students all the time, that when you walk into a situation and you're the only person who can tell everyone else what the other people are saying, we have we have a great responsibility to ensure accuracy and dynamic equivalence. So the pressure's on, definitely. It's a high-pressure job. You want to make sure that people are understanding what the other party is saying. But there's also the issue of the majority culture and the minority culture and people expecting everyone to behave within the minority culture's rules. So when you have a deaf person who wasn't raised in the English, you know, American English hearing culture, they're going to behave differently or act differently or make a statement that is unexpected to the other, to the hearing people in the crowd and vice versa so deaf people tend to be more direct than hearing people. This there's a there's a good reason for this. Um, not, over ninety percent of all deaf people in the United States have hearing parents, and of those hearing parents, uh, less than eighty percent of those parents know sign language. Wow. So there's a lot of Deaf people who have families who have not communicated with them on a daily basis like we do to our kids, you know? So my kids wake up in the morning and I tell them what the day is going to be like. I ask them what they want for breakfast. They have a whole agenda for the day spoken to me and deaf kids don't get that. So when deaf people communicate, they think of what's most important and they're very blunt. They, They say what is on their mind at that moment, that is most important to them. And for hearing people, that can seem very brutal at times. But deaf people aren't trying to offend anybody. They're just trying to make their point because they don't have very many times throughout the day that that point is able to be made.
0: That's really fascinating. And therefore, that's a a potential cultural conflict.
3: Absolutely. And those are the pieces that we as interpreters can filter If we know that the deaf person isn't trying to be offensive, then we frame that question in a non-offensive way to the hearing parties and vice versa. Right.
0: So this is more than just learning, like, lexicons. And, I mean, there's a, a, to undertake this is a major, like, I mean, you're immersing yourself into a much bigger thing than just words and and vocabulary, right? Um,
3: Some people refer to us as bilingual, bicultural mediators, Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. That's great. Okay. How, uh, j- while we're talking about this, how did you um, enter into this field? How did you come interested in this?
3: I met a hot-looking deaf guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to learn the language and fast. Um, I think
0: I've seen this in a movie before.
3: <laughs> yes. Um, I I met this guy, and I felt like I really wanted to talk to him, and I wanted to impress him with all of my knowledge and Wit and so I followed him around for several months, trying to learn the language and um as this was happening, I lived with some hearing people, and I worked with deaf people I had worked with this with this guy, and we would have parties, and I would find myself being the only person who sort of knew both languages, so I found myself interpreting between the deaf party you know, attendees and the hearing party attendees. And we, um, and I thought this is a very cool sort of job to get to know everybody's business and mediate these conversations.
0: I I think that's a great way to get into a field (laughs) because what drew you into it was like the, the, the human aspect of it, right? The the idea of like human relationship. And I think that that's uh, an essential part of, you know, certainly voice, but, but you know, just being a human as well. I, th- I think that is a fantastic way to enter <laughs> any field, actually. Um, <laughs> I wish I had something to match that, actually. so um, um, Well, could you uh, talk about, like, teaching in a, an interpretation program like this? What's involved in that, and how do you approach this work, like, on a day-to-day basis? What do you sort of do with students to prepare them for these kinds of um, situations?
3: Well, I was lucky enough to be able to build my... curriculum here at Mount Aloysius. And I feel that to be a good interpreter, you have to take it one step at a time. And every class builds on the class before that. Every class that we offer is a prerequisite because the first thing students have to understand is the theory of interpretation and the history and the cultural dynamics that are involved with this field. After that, we work on um, pre-interpreting skills. And so we... Um, develop students' cognitive processes with memorization and memory skills, and um, being able. Listening skills are very important for interpreters. Expression skills, summarization, paraphrasing—these sorts of skills have to come into play. Mm. And after that, we take the students take a class called translation. Translation is different from interpreting. A lot of people get that confused, but translation works with frozen text. And interpreting works real-time with live humans. So what's nice about learning translation first is it's a very slow, methodical process where you can go back over the text or the video, for our case for sign language, watch the video several times and figure out what would be the best match in the other language um, for that. After they do that, then we start building up speed, and we take a class called consecutive interpreting, which is... When a person speaks and then pauses, and the interpreter then makes the interpretation mm-hmm. and then turns back so the person can continue the conversation. Mm-hmm. That's what you generally see with spoken language interpreting. Yeah. But um, the final product we have is simultaneous interpretation, which is cognitively one of the hardest processes found on the planet. Yeah.
0: One thing, when I was here um, last semester doing my interview for this job... I was invited to go to the play. They did um, As You Like It, yes. um, and I was struck by, they had two uh, interpreters, um, sign language interpreters for the play. Was that part of your program? Um, and if so, what is the prep for that like?
3: That Those were professional interpreters who have graduated from an interpreting progr- program and are nationally certified. Okay. Prep for a play is weeks. They get the script well ahead of time, they split the roles and decide who is going to interpret for which character within the play. They practice alone, they practice together, they practice with the the play itself, so they'll go to dress rehearsal and make sure their timing is on and make sure that they're in the right location. Though There's different kinds of interpreters for plays, but these interpreters were just standing off to the side right. and interpreting what was being said. Um, yeah, yeah. That is not part of my program. But I will say that this college does a great job of supporting the local deaf community. And so we have, they have agreed to provide interpreters for two plays a year
0: here. That's that's amazing. And, and I felt like when I was watching it, that they were really, I mean, not, they, they were sitting to the side, but they weren't like, they certainly were distracting to the performance, and in some ways they were kind of part of the performance, I felt like. And it was a really interesting way of um, bringing that other culture like, on stage, really, with um, the, the hearing community. I think that was really, really cool.
3: And for my students, the bilingual students out there, they felt that those interpreters were helpful because they didn't quite understand the English in the Shakespeare but they understood the interpretation in ASL
0: That's another I didn't even think about that aspect I mean Shakespeare when you think about like embodying a kind of voice that um, is uh, not available to, to a lot of contemporary English speakers and uh, and, and for them having that you know, like second register of language is, was useful that's really interesting um, this is I, this is why I was interested in, in having you come here. Uh, and and talk to us about this program because this this topic itself about voice and what it means to have a voice in a society and in a culture is is such a complex um thing that this is an aspect of it that I don't think anybody really thinks about (laughs) unless unless it's unless they're in front of it and so I think that that um that's been great um do you have any anecdotes or a little story that you want to share
3: related to interpreting yeah
0: or the program teaching um
3: I I will share that being a sign language interpreter is an amazing job, and I have been places that people wouldn't have imagined an interpreter to be present, but if there is a deaf person and a hearing person who doesn't know sign language in a room together for any professional or educational or medical situation, there should be an interpreter hired to be there. There are times that people ask a deaf person's child to interpret for them or their parent, which is very inappropriate when you consider Mm. equating the two messages, not just filling in this word with this sign, you know, finding these equivalencies, which are never quite equivalencies. But I've been lucky enough to interpret for um, several childbirths and scuba diving lessons. And um, I was, I spent a month, in the woods with an um, anthropology class doing an archaeological dig. Um, I've had a lot of really fantastic experiences. I used to have my government clearance and I worked for the Department of Defense down in Washington, D.C. So if you are looking for a job that has a lot of variety, this is a great career.
0: That's great. And the idea that I mean, the human experiences that this gets you yes. access to uh, is seemingly endless, and, and I think that that's, that's great. Is, is there, a, if someone wants to contact you um, about the program, is there a way, a source that they can go to?
3: Sure. If they go on to Mount Aloysius College website and type in interpreting, it has all the information about our program and my contact information okay. as well.
0: Thank you so much, Kirsten. This was a wonderful conversation. and I look forward to any feedback that any listeners might have for us about it. Have a nice day. You too. Well, um, we hope to hear more from uh, Kirsten in the future. She's uh, indicated to me that she wants to uh, sit in on a a future episode about travel. Uh, So uh, perhaps listen listen for her in the upcoming months. But uh, one function, one thing we do in this podcast is talk about art and uh, one function of art and literature and um, all the ways that humans creatively express themselves um, is to rescue us from our reality. Uh, Now, as we said, I've opened the show with a few lines of Whitman um, that help me think a little bit about the ways in which uh, the artwork kind of helps us think about this subject. Um, Are there other artworks that challenge our idea of voice to be a better one? Mark, do you want to start with that?
2: Well, I think, um, you know, when you talk about artwork or pieces of artwork that challenge our voice to be a better one, you know, that also goes back uh, to what Tom was pointing out in the um, um, Brueggemann and giving voice to what's on the ground or giving voice and causing you to see things that you might not necessarily have, have seen. And so, for example, um, one of the things that has always fascinated me are the people who are winning, uh, you know, sort of national acclaim for the photographs they take. And in many ways, they are acting as prophetic voices because they are actually taking photographs of, you know, poverty, of suffering. Uh, Even more recently, um, the photograph of the child who died, Mm -hmm. uh, who was a child of the refugees washing up on the shores, and how that particular piece of artwork – gave voice to an entire group of people flooding uh, out of various parts into Europe and how it just shocked and stunned the world. And suddenly the entire world becomes mobilized by that one image. And that's really the power of a piece of work that it connects with you at an emotional level and causes you to react And what's fascinating is is you don't even have necessarily a dialogue partner in that. Mm -hmm. You're just confronted with an image. That image evokes an emotional response or causes you uh, to think about things in a way maybe that you've never been exposed to or seen. And it's that sort of emotional response that oftentimes is just pieces of quality artwork. Um, You know, I'm thinking of sort of Ansel Adams and a lot of his black and white photography and things like that and how he was able within a black and white photograph to capture majesty uh, oftentimes in ways that, um, for instance, what I'm thinking of is, you know, you're in medieval Europe and you walk into a cathedral and you can't speak the language and the space has been created to evoke certain responses So when you walk into that cathedral and the high ceilings evoke this incredible sense of grandeur and being overwhelmed and being insignificant. And then you see the artwork pieces and all of this is designed in many ways uh, to evoke that sense of awe and majesty.
0: Um, Great examples. Uh, Tom, you have anything?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting. The, um, it's very interesting. I think, um, when I think about those things that, um, that are most moving and, and, and seem to have an original voice. They, they're usually doing one of a couple of things. And now, um, Danny uh, or, um, Mark kind of has my head spinning and I'm thinking of the hundred of other, hundred other ways that, (laughs) that, that things can move you. But I mean, um, they're either disruptive or they seem, um, familiar and uncanny a little bit. So, so the picture of the, of the child, um, uh, that's, that's entirely disruptive. You know, I see that and I don't, I don't know what to do with it. And so, um, my perspective shifts. It's, um, I have to imagine a world where that makes sense and it doesn't. So I have to do something with it. Right. Um, and so that, that kind of cognitive dis- dissonance is going to evoke something in me. Um, but I'm also I mean, in a less heavy way. I'm, like, I, if I think about the couple of kinds of the couple of times that I heard a piece of music uh, for the first time and it completely um, just stopped me in my tracks, you know, it was doing one of those two things. It might be um, the first time I heard Miles Davis kind of blue. The first notes sound like notes that I had heard before. It sounds totally um, easy and comfortable and yet, it sounds totally unfamiliar. It's totally unlike anything I, I've uh, I've heard before, and so that's its own kind of um, interesting dissonance. I think that it that it's almost uncanny. It feels familiar, and you want to understand why it's not. Or, um, you know, uh, probably if I hear something that that I have no. Um, background for if I the first time I hear Robbie Shankar, um sounds completely different than um the Beatles records I've been listening to all day, you know, um that's a that's a happy kind of cognitive dissonance, you know, and I think um it doesn't sound anything like my voice, it doesn't sound like any of the voices of the the people that I that I know, but it's it's disrupted me in some way. I think you know that disruption can be positive or, or unsettling, but it's, but it's always some kind of disruption if it if it's really moving you.
2: Yeah. And you know, the other thing, even in, for instance, in literature, yeah. um, you know, a, a quote from Elizabeth Scott, um, it, it, which caused me to think about this, you know, where she says, like, I love books because when I sink into it, I escape from the world into a story that's way more interesting than mine. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes it's not even maybe disruptive, but sometimes it's escape.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And and when you enter into an engagement with someone else's voice, um, it allows you maybe to lose your own.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I think the idea of um, the effacement of one's own voice is, is going to come up a little bit here later. Um, but uh, I also think that... Um, um, when i I was thinking about this my own question here, uh, I was originally going to talk about the book "Call It Sleep" by Henry Roth, which is a, a kind of immigrant narrative, very kind of modernist uh, American literature. Uh, and so it's very much, um, epistemological and and it is how a person makes sense of the world around him. And, And it's sort of this coming of age novel, um, where language is both a barrier and this sort of like entryway into this kind of big spiritual world. And so the different languages that this Yiddish speaking boy, um, experiences in new york city upon his arrival is as much a part of the book as anything else um but actually today in class i was talking about the poem digging by seamus haney um and uh our conversation was really interesting that the the place i teach is a very working class um area uh, and many people work in the coal industry and and so there's something about and yet these kids are at college right trying to do something um outside of that kind of uh, labor-intensive um, uh, career. And mm-hmm. so there's something that resonates uh, with them about the speaker's dilemma in that poem. He uh, This poem begins with him comparing his pen, because uh, he's going to write poetry, to uh, a gun, right? And so it has the potential to really do violence to his own kind of cultural and family traditions. Um, and Somehow he's kind of brought into a memory of his father and grandfather and the kind of work they did, and he's kind of guilted into like there's a moral dilemma about what to do with the work that's before him and the work for before him is to write and so he has made a decision at the end of that poem to um, basically embody those voices that that um, to kind of carry on that tradition as opposed to just breaking with it, uh, as opposed to someone like Philip Roth, uh, whose, um, fiction is, is very much about, um, kind of using the pen as a gun in some ways to, uh, to kind of belittle and, and create humor out of, uh, the cultural tradition. And so, um, we had a really interesting conversation about the kind of moral decision about, uh, how to participate in, in the voices from the past there. And so that's, that's one thing I was thinking about, Tom, you look like you want to say something. <laughs>
1: um, I, I might, I, I love that poem. It's one of, um, I love Seamus Heaney. And um, I, and I think that there's something about the way that poetry operates on us that um, makes those things possible without, without needing that narrative, you know, even before it, we get to the story of the father and the grandfather, and then, you know, back to the speaker himself before, you know, any of that, that image, um, I think it's the squat pen rests snug as a gun. Yeah. It's, um, the, there, there is this, this heavy, heavy sense of the squat pen, you know, there's, there's some weight to that, but it rests snug as a gun that, and, and so it's comfortable and it's, um, in a way that, and I forget the, what the rest of the images are, but they're like, you get kind of thwack noises of like digging into the, 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 dirt. Um, but that sense of like, even in the language, you have that sense of heavy burdens, um, and that, that are also a comfort. Right. Okay. Um, and so I guess, I, I guess that's kind of what I mean by this kind of familiar, unfamiliar, uncanny sort of thing that, um, uh, The voice there is um, we connect with poems or we connect with art not always because it tells our story or gives voice to um, something we wish that we could have said, but because it feels familiar that it that there's a our response to it makes sense, given the um,
0: just the feeling of it. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. The the, the feeling in that poem. I know what that I know what that feels like. I'm not Irish, but I know what that feels like.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's why my students, I think, could connect with it in the yeah. way that they did. Yeah. Um, well, you know,
2: oh, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. Uh, you know, Danny, just listening to sort of you know your conversation, and I'm not familiar with the poem, but coming from sort of the background that I'm coming from uh, with my PhD work in sort of New Testament biblical studies theology, um, you know, what happens to voice when it changes medium? Uh, and and you know, you're talking about Seamus Haney. And how he decides that he's going to identify with his fathers and grandfathers. And in doing that, he's going to maybe give voice to them in a new medium. Mm. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, you know, for instance, like um, the synoptic gospels or even, well, not the, just the synoptics, but the gospels, right? Mm-hmm. They sort of become uh, written islands in the midst of this verbal stream. And, and so, you know, what happens to that voice when it becomes fixed, or I'm thinking – you know, and, and even sort of the Gospels coming about because of the crisis of the death of the apostles, uh, and that seems to be implied at the end of John. But then I think of, for instance, um, survivors of the Holocaust or survivors of World War II and, and a crisis that we face when those original voices are being lost. And now all of a sudden we have to communicate that message in a different medium. Um, and so I, that what we're talking about here just got me fascinated and thinking about, wow, what happens when that voice becomes fixed within a particular medium because it no longer ceases to exist, to live uh, or, you know, you're passing on. And how does that get passed on to a new generation?
0: Yeah. And I, I could just say from, um, you know, my, my field is Jewish American fiction, of course. And um, like I know that in Holocaust studies, there's a lot of controversy about whether it's ever appropriate to represent the Holocaust. And the name is escaping me right now. Um, No one really experienced it except the people who actually perished. Um, And and so to be able to just sort of, uh, there's a lot of trepidation um, among people about translating that into another medium. um, And and because there is something powerful (laughs) about representation.
2: Yeah. And so the question becomes, does that voice, is that voice now dead? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's um, a, <laughs> a good question and one that I don't have an answer to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: but you know, the, at the same time, that's, um, actually the, the reminds me of, um, something I saw, uh, Lee Young Lee wrote, um, in an essay about, um, about silence. And he was saying that, um, So so English is not his first language, uh, but it's the language in which he writes. And he said, I feel the real medium for me is silence. So I could be writing in any language to inflect the inner silence, to give it body. That's all we're doing. You use the voice to make the silence present. The real subject in poetry isn't the voice. The real subject is silence. Hmm. Right. So um, I think that's a beautiful way of talking about. I, um, I mean, he's kind of talking about the human condition. But when we look at these catastrophic events, it really comes into focus that, that you're not – the subject isn't the Holocaust. The subject isn't even necessarily um, death. But the subject is this, the silence. The subject is the thing that can't be there. Um, so it's an approaching you, – I'm comfortable with writing about these things. If you're approaching it, recognizing it, that you'll never get there. But that, um, but that's the point, you know, we're standing on the outside looking in on the silence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that's what keeps the conversation going. Right. Um, And that's, that's kind of essential to voice, I think. Well, I've been pretty much operating from a position of suspicion about voice because I'm I don't believe in authenticity, of course. Uh, And I think some of Michael Farmer's existentialism is rubbed off on me, obviously. Um, But can you talk about how I'm wrong? I mean, there's certainly certainly something about the individual voice that is worth salvaging and celebrating. Um, I have no answer to this. So I'm depending on you guys. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, well, I mean, I would say if you're, you're starting out with with Whitman today, and one of my one of my answers is that the individual voice is never individual, right? Um, we talk about Whitman being a democratic voice um, because he seems to collect all of these other voices. But what really seems to be happening there, what what feels authentic to us there, is that um, the ego drops away very quickly, and that um, that the poem becomes about perceiving I'm seeing all of these things and I, and I want to represent them. I want to show them to you. Um, and that becomes the voice. So, um, and, and I, and I think that's true of anything. Anytime we're talking about an authentic voice, we're talking about something that, um, has recognized many other voices and has been able to see, see the light through the crack a little bit to, to give body to the silence. Man.
0: And that's great. And so the voice is not something that's taking like in, in, so much of our discourse. Now the voice is something that takes, but in that case, the voice is something that gives back. Right. And, and I think yeah. that's a really beautiful way to conceive of it there. Yeah. Uh, Mark.
2: Oh, I, I was just, you know, for instance, the voice that I have coming from the perspective that I, that I do, you know, if I were gonna trace the influences of my voice in a river like fashion or on a journey, right? I would trace the influences upon my voice all the way back, you know, say two thousand, three thousand years ago to whenever the first text was written, if that was by Moses or, or whatever. And so these communities, a lot of times we think of these communities in negative fashions because, you know, how we started out the conversation because of political factions and things like that. But my voice, if I am taking in these things and reworking these things, is my voice original? And I I, I like what he said. No. But what my voice is representing maybe is not just sort of this faction, but a long flowing river, a continuum of – voices mm-hmm. and what ends up happening it's kind of like uh Gadamer when he talks about the fusion of horizons and, and things like that 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 the voice that i'm representing is if i'm doing it well it has been a fusion of multiple horizons mm-hmm. and so that when i interact with you the product of that conversation of those two voices coming together and this sort of draws together what we've been talking about about the artwork you know where it creates a cognitive dissonance and a disruption and it forces us then to uh assimilate these things uh and in many ways produce new horizons in us when we engage in that voice recognizing all of the different various communities that have filtered into that voice
0: awesome um This is so much fun for me. Um, I hate to even move on, but we have to, sadly. Um, Well, one thing, this is sectarian review, so I do want to have some time for reviews, actually, in it. And so uh, I I have one that I'm ready to go with, but uh, would one of you guys like to share uh, something? And this is sort of open to whatever genre you're interested in, if this is a an artwork or if this is a, a, a critical work or whatever uh a performance, uh something that you guys want to share that it contributes something to uh to this show? Uh, Tom, you wanna start?
1: Yeah, sure. Um so I, as soon as you said this, uh or as soon as I got the invite, I should say, to um to to talk with you all today, I the first thing I thought of was a book um I picked up a few years ago called Negro League Baseball. Um, it's a, book, a collection of poems from Harmony Holiday. Um, and what, what was initially interesting about the book is that it, it came with um, a soundtrack or this um, recording that was kind of a mashup of different musics, um, different soundscapes, um, and actually a bunch of different voices that there were. Um, and I, I can't tell you who all was on there. I've actually there's something telling about the fact that I lost the CD. I have no idea. <laughs> it fell out of my car door one day and never to be found again. Yeah. Um, so it's a, <laughs> it's a continuum of silent voices. <laughs> um, but, but what, what that did is that it um, it's, it's another one of these collecting of voices to, um, and in that collection, somehow is Harmony Holiday's own voice. So all of that happens. Um, she's creating this world, but she's also, this is also a book of poems that really, uh, they end up sounding like, uh, unlike any other book of poems that I've read. So um, there's a real quick, I'll just read the first poem from that book. Um, it's called a, a Rumor About More Earth. Dumbed fire of a carved, punk, punk, let me try that again. Dumbed fire of a carved pumpkin starting the threshold of a virginia porch you look stepping you look the pleasure feet burgundy outstretched triply searching for girlhood and world and wood you aren't my father hunched father in a harvest lantern starting the threshold of an antique porch you too stepping looking the pleasure feet burgundy outstretched waltzing searching for soft wood unfurl and good you are my fire um, you know, there's there's narrative in there. It's mixed in, kind of like um, like the music would be mixed in, and there are patterns that repeat, and you recognize them, and they feel familiar, but they also feel totally strange, and I love that.
0: You had sent uh, a link to us. Uh prior to this recording and yeah. I looked at the view and I'll actually include that link on the Facebook page, uh, uh for the sectarian review, if you're listening still and you want to look that up, it's, it's available. Um, uh, the, um, the, pr- the presentation I thought was really interesting. The, her delivery of her own poetry was very matter of fact and dull. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. And, and it's, um, it's,
1: I don't know if the word I want is offsetting or upsetting, <laughs> um, but yeah, she, she, um, it's from UC Berkeley's lunch poems. And, um, she, she comes out with it, you know, an Apple laptop and sets it on. And she says, I'm going to, um, I, I'm going to play a couple of things and then I'm going to read. And when she, when she plays, you can hear her clicking around, like looking for the things she wants to play and then she you hear her rustling the pages um, looking for the book and um and, <laughs> and 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 her delivery i i keep saying that it sounds like the samuel beckett play play <laughs> where like people are in purgatory and there's just this monotone like rattling off of the images now i, I want to say i love her poems and i i think in some ways this whole thing works um but but what she's what's beautiful about it is that in her projects, she's creating the idea of a voice yes. um, and that the limitations of human voice, the limitations of technology make it more difficult, um, you know, and make it seem like impossible voices. But But the sense of that voice is what's most important, I think, about her work, you
0: know. Yeah, I did not mean at all uh, a critique of that. I mean, on the surface, it sounds like an undergraduate reading poetry in the ways that bother us as teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Just uh, just sort of rushing through it. There's no sort of uh, performance to it at all. Um, But I feel like in the context of what she's trying to do, it is an effacement of her own voice, right? And and a sort of creation of a new one um, with these other Media. And, and I just thought it was a fascinating performance, and it's definitely worth um, worth checking out. So um, thank you for that. I was unaware of her poetry, and I, I'm going to try and find a way to bring that into class actually at some point. So um, that was terrific. So, um, Mark. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm actually, when we started
2: um, talking about this and planning for this, um, one of the things that I went back and started reading again was one of my favorite authors is Henri Nouwen. Mm -hmm. And um, and particularly uh, I'm working through with a couple of students who are who are seeking to go into ministry, uh, a book called In the Name of Jesus. And um, it's fascinating to me to get into conversations with them, uh, because what now does is he goes through and he addresses ministry and ministers and these deep seated desires that are often within us that we struggle with, you know, uh, desires to be relevant and spectacular and all of these things. And he does that by addressing it through the temptations of Christ. But the thing that fascinates me about that is, uh, you know, with Nowin's background of thinking that his teaching and lectureships at major universities and institutions uh, were impeding uh, his spiritual development and his spiritual life. So he abandons all of that and goes and lives in a community uh, uh, called La Arche. And then he begins to give voice to the inner struggles that he was facing that he can now reflect on um, as a professor in theology. Mm-hmm. And, and as I was reading this with my students, and, and the reason why it fascinates me is because what he does, and it, goes, it just sort of comes full circle in what we were talking about, about how certain people give voice to those inner private things that you're thinking uh, and, and especially at times in positions of, of Christian leadership, um, you have all of these thoughts that you are deathly afraid to express. Mm-hmm. And and now and allows you to come face-to-face with those things and and expresses them and talks about the struggles and the struggles that he faced. And I'm sitting there using this book with students, and they're looking at me as sort of a dumbfounded look because they've not been there. You know, they're going into ministry, but they're attracted by the very people that exhibit the qualities that now one is trying to get them uh, to speak against mm-hmm. and, and, or at least to think and, and to question. Um, and so that's one of my sort of fascinations with him as an author in particular and with that book, and especially with that phrase in the title, in the name of Jesus, because in many ways what he's calling you to do is give voice, um, to embody Uh, to speak on behalf, to represent uh, visually, verbally, in all of these ways um, sort of what Jesus would have looked like and the type of ministry he would have pursued. And it's fascinating for someone like myself who has been there uh, in some of the churches that he would probably condemn, um, and and certainly leaders, um, and he gives voice to those deep-seated issues that you struggle with and that in many ways only comes about through time and experience in ministry. When you begin to realize that those things are inside of you, uh, this desire to be spectacular, you know, this desire to be relevant, to make sure that you are helpful to people and all of these things. Um, and he brings it sort of back to the whole question. Do you love me? Which was Jesus's question to Peter. Um, and so, uh, Yeah, I'm always, especially that particular book, uh, In the Name of Jesus, I've often been drawn to that. And when we started talking about sort of these concepts of of voice and what gives voice, uh, for me, it's those books that allow me, that give voice to the inner things that I struggle with, bring them out. I hear them from another perspective. I can identify with those things and then begin to work through, deal with them, face them. And and uh and so that's sort of the type of book right now that that I'm working through with students uh and I found fascinating. That's awesome. And
0: uh give us the name one more time. Oh, it's Henry Nowen and it's in the name of Jesus. Okay. And uh we'll put a link uh to probably Amazon or something for that. So um well I have one. I want to talk about this uh, British punk singer uh <laughs> named Ian Dury. Um do you guys remember Susan Boyle a couple of years ago? She yeah. some frumpy housewife who it big on some british singing show right um well i have no personal problem with her music right but i find the reception to that a little troubling so youtube it if you don't know what i'm talking about um you have this older woman this frumpy lady taking the stage to ridicule because she doesn't fit into the expectations of this context this young and beautiful crowd and the spectacle that they're there to witness um which one could say is a contemporary worship service, I think. Um, uh, she sings well, really well, actually, beautifully, and wins the crowd over, and it's very inspiring, right? Um, but what it does is it leaves the system that marginalized her in the first place unchallenged and free of its own guilt, right? So I prefer somebody like Ian Dury and his band, The Blockheads, okay? Uh, Dury was this sort of punkish uh, singer-songwriter who came out of the British pub rock scene of the mid-70s. Uh, and even by punk standards, he's kind of an oddball. He's noticeably older than most people. Uh, he was probably in his 30s when all this was going on in the late 70s. Uh, but even more importantly, he was crippled uh, from a bout of polio he had suffered uh, as, a t- as a child. He contacted or contracted it swimming in a contaminated pool. Um, and at the time it wasn't clear that young Dury would even survive, but he did, uh, though he was crippled for the rest of his life by the experience. Uh, and he spent the rest of his life in a leg brace and with limited use of one of his hands. And he was a very small kind of shriveled man. Right. Um, so I always kind of like British punk. I loved its kind of scruffiness, uh, and, and the kind of, uh, the, the sloppiness of it, right? There's something beautiful to me about that as someone who's not very articulate and has always struggled with that. Uh, but even by those standards, Dury sort of stands out. Um, so what he provides his audience is this kind of spectacle of disaster is how I'm putting it. Um, he sort of uses his disability to construct the stage persona, right? He was offensive to the system um, and and proudly kind of brought that, his offense into light, to sort of reflect back at it uh, all of its problems. Right. And unlike the Susan Boyle example, Dury doesn't ever allow the system to ignore its own corruption and prejudice, though he kind of retains a bit of inspiration. Like there's something inspiring about him. Um, He's very lovable and incorrigible and utterly profane. Um, I think I named this Ian Dury, the profane conscience is what I named this little thing. Um, um, And this is how he's uh, inspiring. Frankly, I, I, Kind of largely identify with the intellectual tradition of the New York intellectuals. The name of this podcast comes from Partisan Review, which is kind of one of their flagship publications. Uh, And their resistance to sort of the middle brow, what they call the middle brow, uh, pretty much captures my feelings on this subject. Leslie Fiedler wrote an essay, uh, it's called Two ends or both ends against the middle, I forget which what 's called, but basically he 's looking at the comics industry uh, comic book industry, and what it shared with the quote highbrow culture, people like Faulkner uh, was a common foe in the middle brow, which is for those guys kind of a, a kind of art that simply entertains and leaves injustice and inequality sort of undisturbed it 's a consumer product that supports oppressive social structures. Um, and this is the difference between the Dury and the Boyle, right? Uh, Dury's absurdly lowbrow, <laughs> and therefore he sort of performs an ethical, the same ethical work of the highbrow, I would think. So um, so given our subject today, I want to start with his voice. It's, it's singular. It's gruff, and it, he even by punk standards, uh, it's best suited for like spoken word sorts of things or just shouting, right? And, and he had very difficult... It could not really carry a tune in the traditional sense. Um, And he certainly wouldn't impress anybody on a television show like The Voice, right? Um, And combined with this bizarre stage presence, he was everything a musician shouldn't be, right? And yet, um, he had this amazing band that he put together called The Blockheads. Uh, And the whole scene was paradoxical. You can look this up on YouTube and watch these videos. Um, And I'll put some links up the the Blackheads exquisite musicianship i mean listen to the ba- the a famous song you may have heard of it's called hit me with your rhythm stick uh is uh, one of uh Dury's big hits um the line in that i i defy anybody to match the the, the musicianship of that bassline. um uh and all of the musicians in that band the blackheads were world class and far and away outclassed any other punk uh musician that you ever would ever hear um and they're yet they're fronted by this withered little ugly man <laughs> who basically <laughs> uh, carried himself like Richard the third on stage. He, he had these bizarre movements and he would carry this cane that he'd wave around. And, um, and so what I'm suggesting is that the, the, the blockheads talent um, would have just kind of faded into obscurity. I mean, there's lots of really talented musicians, except they were rescued by this, the, The outcast in front of them, this this scruffy little uh, man, right? Without him, they would have just been another faceless disco band, maybe, and and probably just as forgettable. Um, But at the same token, Dury needed them as well, right? Um, The outcast finding his voice in communion with that immense talent, I think, is just so kind of heartwarming. I heard one commentator say that Dury found himself on stage like literally found himself his, his voice on stage because of the confidence that band gave him. I think the guy put it that they were like his muscle and he was sort of like a gangster, you know, in front and, and it allowed him to sort of really flourish as a performer and to accomplish things that he had no business accomplishing in the British music industry. Uh, and to create this amazing, brutal character. Right. Um, and so I just think it's a beautiful example of heart and skill needing and finding each other to create a, a really unique and valuable voice because it it's not something that you can just write off like uh, it's like, Oh, the system's okay. It really kind of puts the ugliness of society <laughs> right back on stage, and really is a challenging thing to watch. Some of his famous songs, like I said, "Hit Me with Your Rhythm, Rhythm Stick." His first album, their first album together, is called "New Boots and Panties," which is a wonderful record, actually. Um, and uh, uh, the second album is called "Do It Yourself," which is sort of the punk slogan, right? Um, and the album cover's hilarious because it's got this kind of old lady wallpaper um, with this phrase, do it yourself on it. Uh, and the great songs on there much more sort of disco like. Uh, and so there's a particularly great song on there called sink my boats. Um, I'll probably play a few minutes of here, um, but it just, it's very profane, um, but it's sort of profanity and naked ugliness, <laughs> um, which is actually resisting the kind of, intellectual and moral laziness of the middle brow. Um, and just as an example of his audacity, um, at some point there was a some movement to national it was some sort of like honoring the disabled week or, or month or something in the british music industry and he wrote a song called spasticus autisticus okay and and it was so like offensive that they actually wouldn't play it right but this is sort of the the approach that he brought to things um and and there's actually a really interesting interview where he's sort of defending his choice to to be offensive uh as, as kind of moral work right um, and so why I enjoy him and I don't enjoy Mark Trump's namestake when I feel like in some ways they're performing (laughs) a similar sort of uh, guilty social conscience. I don't know. I will leave that to my guests and the viewers to to decide. But uh, uh, do you guys have any uh, final thoughts, any kind of uh, things to leave us with, any bits of wisdom?
2: I am good as far as uh, on my end. I mean, there are many more things that we could take a lot of time thinking about um, that uh, that we didn't even sort of get to at this point. Um, but things that I find fascinating as far as uh, giving voice and how we give voice, and even how God gives voice, um, you know, and, and what you were talking about as far as the person and God giving voice uh, through sort of this bloodied image you know uh just calls into question the entire social order mm-hmm. and and things like that and so but again that could be for another time
0: yeah uh how you doing tom
1: uh, the rest <laughs> is silence
0: <laughs> <laughs> excellent <laughs> excellent well guys i so much enjoyed talking to you please um i invite you to come back often uh it was it was I learned a lot from both of you, and I had a really fun time. So uh, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks to get another a quick episode in to get back on schedule here um, in time for Halloween. Uh, and I guess picking up from the Ian Dury thing, I'd like to do something about uh, the ethical work of horror. Uh, and so, um, if uh, anybody has it, any listeners out there would like to uh, shoot off any questions or anything. We do have a, a Gmail account. It's uh, sectarianreview@gmail.com, at gmail.com and there is a Facebook page out there uh, which I know that you know how to find so uh, fellas, thanks a lot I really appreciate it and uh, have a great day. Thanks,
1: this is fun
0: Thanks Dan. Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion In the meantime, check out our Facebook page and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com sectarian review is a part of the christian humanist radio network eternal thanks to kristen philippic intrepid press liaison until next time remember the words of kafka don't despair not even over the fact that you don't despair bye